Welcome everyone to Link to the Cast, episode 139, on the show this week. We talk about a film that came out last week, spoilers ahead. Jack has been playing this game called Baba Is You. That Sonic trailer, oh dear, oh my. Notch will not be included in Microsoft's 10 year anniversary plans, because why would he? And for our book club feature this week, we're going back to the 90s as uh, Detective Pikachu is out soon and we feel it's just about the right time to talk about that wonderful game that we hope one day will make a return. It's Pokemon Snap. Let's start the show. This is Link to the Cast, and Dave Ryan, your Yuji Party host, is away on assignment. So, the platform prodigy, Mark Robinson, is taking the reins, and <laughs> with me is the Roman Reigns of the podcasting audio world, Jack Lazell, making his first official appearance as an official, fully-fledged member of the Link to the Cast crew. We've traded you over from Faces for Radio, and you're now here with us. The band is back together again. Jack, how are you? <laughs> I leave a trail of failing podcasts in my wake. Uh, that, was, that was Faces for Radio, that was a thing, and then we got podcast. God knows if Popcorn Social is ever going to ride again, so yeah. It's alright, we're just going <laughs> to merge it into this. It's convergence. What I'm trying to say is, link to the cast days are numbered, my friend. Are you the podcasting albatross, is that what you are? I'm pretty much, yeah. That's. I mean, I even said to Dave that uh, if you were going to include me in the artwork, I need to be dressed like Poochie from the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, look at this wacky character we're bringing on board. Some would say the unfortunate new direction of Link to the Cast. Oh dear. How are you? How are things? Uh, I actually realise, usually when me and Dave say to each other, like, hey, how's it going? I've just been speaking to him all week, but I haven't actually spoken to you, like, heard your voice in a while, so how the hell are you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Just, uh, you know, getting on with life bit of a restructure going on at work at the moment so that's a, all a bit strange as it as it inevitably is in this corporate minefield that mm-hmm. we all inhabit uh and yeah everything else in in general day-to-day life just deciding what i'm gonna do with my three months now the football season's nearly over and there's no major tournament my guess is a lot of video games is the answer to that there you go i mean there's a fair few things that have come out recently that you can uh or maybe you could just go back and watch like 22 MCU films all in order. Oh, well, that'd probably take what, like three days or so. Or maybe you could just watch Messi's free kick from last night and repeat for a month. Cause... Yeah, well, for the whole three months is the only football that I'm going to consume. Yeah, exactly. Sounds perfect. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, sensible, sensible, sensible stuff. But we do also well, have that... Detective Pikachu coming out in, in next week as well. So trust me, there'll be things to keep you busy. I'm not even going to pretend I'm anything other than ridiculously excited about that. Like everything they've done up to this point in terms of what they've shown us and the marketing behind it all, it's just unique and and brilliant. So let's hope it's not too much of a turkey because you know, when something seems cool in concept and you see like little glimpses of it and you're like, Oh, that's fun. And then it sort of wears out very quickly, the the sort of wonder of it all, and, and you realise there's not an awful lot of substance to it. That's my main worry with Detective Pikachu. Yeah, I have a fair amount of anticipation now, and uh, I, I'm still going in with at least enough of an idea that all right, it's still a film that's based off a video game, there is a precedent for this to be bad, but I don't know, the trailers, 
It looks good. It looks good. It does look good. I am. Um, I, I think Ryan Reynolds was a masterstroke. I think he's the only one of the only people in Hollywood that could genuinely pull it off, and like a, a name brand that you can just instantly rely on to to just plug and play. And go right. We need you to play a tiny electric mouse, uh, and you need to uh, wear a sweet ass detective Sherlock Holmes style hat. And he probably went, yeah, <laughs> no problem. Uh, anyone that's seen like anything that he's done up to this point, he's one of those people that's just annoyingly good when it comes to acting. That he can pretty much do comedy and action and, and all sorts of stuff in equal measures, pretty damn well. Even if his choices haven't always been amazing, <laughs> Green Lantern. But yeah, other than that, I'm uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking they've got the right guys in here. And I just hope uh, the Pokemon don't look too weird. I kind of like what I've seen so far. I'm very much looking forward to that sort of almost like Fight Club-esque scene between Pikachu and, and Charizard, which kind of looks a bit like uh, the scene in in uh, Thor, uh, the last the last Thor film where everybody oh, is in. Some, yeah, he's yeah. in like a sort of uh, like post-apocalyptic wasteland planet, and Jeff Goldblum is making Hulk and Thor fight like gladiators so yeah i hope it goes in that sort of direction in fact if jeff goldblum was in this movie i'd be giving it the, the full five stars if, if jeff goldblum seen. was voicing pikachu that would have been <laughs> yeah or christopher like, uh, or morgan he's freeman like, uh, he's like uh pika speaking are you making me try and do, i can't do impressions i'm not gonna sit here and go i'm christopher walk and pikachu like i'm not gonna do that we we just... would probably need friend of the show uh steven to to do that he's he's oh yes Walken was on parallel yeah but i just want him to do pikachu as alan partridge <laughs> <laughs> accidental pika oh my god anyway speaking of films um yeah endgame came out last week oh yeah the small the small matter of the most immediately successful film of all time yeah you may have heard of it uh so from this point on uh spoilers are ahead i'll put a timestamp up on the description for this show so if you haven't seen it yet do not worry you will not be spoiled by anything we're about to talk about jack lazell endgame a mini popcorn social give me your thoughts I mean, it, it's just overwhelmingly brilliant. They've just, they hit it out of the park, Mark, um, which is fun to say, on, on every possible category. Every character is, is represented brilliantly. And they just, there's just so many moments uh, f- for fans and, and people that, that are interested, even like casually all the way up to like diehard Marvel fans who spot tiny touches like whether it's just like a subtle allusion to something if you've only seen movies or like you're in the past and you see hank pym's original ant-man helmet from like the comics like there was a guy that tried to do every single easter egg in the movie on youtube and the youtube video and it's it's legitimately half an hour long (laughs) <laughs> which is like one sixth the length of the, the bloody movie just to get in detail all of the things that they included and it felt satisfying in in so many ways the way that they paid off a lot of the things that they'd set up 
there wasn't anybody in the film that you were left at the end that you just thought, oh, I thought they could have did, done this or that or the other thing with them. And they treated everything with the sort of the brevity that it deserved to be treated with, but at the same time sort of retaining a, a general sense of humour, um, which I, I don't know, like the tone of that movie was so difficult. And man, hats off to the Russo brothers because they, they've been on the path since Captain America Winter Soldier to uh, to get this job and they've just everything they've done they've just done with absolute aplomb and really can't argue with it and yeah I it just made me so happy I mean it made me cry a couple of times like legitimately cry at like a fucking superhero movie uh, uh, I tell you what when when Spider Man swung through Doctor Strange's uh, like portal I that for whatever reason that was what. I was gone at that point, even though it was just Spider-Man just showing up. The yeah. the kind of context behind it and how you know with what happened in Infinity War, I just yeah, that was that was the bit that I I was gone. The uh, that whole scene could not have been more inch perfect. You've got this sort of, I mean, we are right into the sort of the, the crux of the movie of the ultimate final battle, and like Thanos is, is there and he's fighting off Iron Man and he's fighting off uh, Captain America and Thor and he looks like he's about to murder Thor like in this in the same way that Thor buried his axe into Thanos's chest in the first movie and you can see the sort of glee in his face of, of recreating that moment and then you just see Thor's hammer just out of nowhere and, and, and the cap has got the hammer and I don't know about your screener Mark but I've seen it twice now, and in both screenings, people legitimately cheered <laughs> as if it was like England were playing and someone had just scored a goal uh, in the World Cup or something. It was it was amazing. But that whole moment, and then you think Cap's going to get the better of Thanos, and he gets a drop on him, and Cap's like beaten down, he's bloodied, and we've seen this moment from Cap before, like brilliantly in civil war where tony's just kicking the shit after him after finding out about about what winter soldier and what happened with his dad and he gets up as if to say you know like i'm still gonna fight you and then while he's getting up like an entire army of like all of the bad people and and, and aliens and shit that you've seen in every single avengers movie just come the only thing that wasn't flying around was like um ultron's robots Everything is there behind Thanos, and it is just Steve by himself with an army and his broken shield. And then, you, as you eloquently like put it, like the portal appears, and like Spider-Man swings through, and Black Panther, and turns out just everybody starts coming out of the portals, and it's just overwhelmingly great. The music swells up, and Cap finally says, "Avengers assemble!" and everyone charges into battle. I've never felt more excited at any moment in any movie, and that's not hyperbolic. Like, that was just... I mean, it's its its genre-defining. If you can think of a better moment from a superhero movie than that, I'd like to fucking hear what it is, because it just... It was so perfect. Oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm excited recounting it to you, Mark. That's how excited I am. I, I really need to go and see it again. I've only seen it once. Um... Um, I absolutely died at the Hell Hydra line. Um, yeah. The way they set that up, the just the, the layers to that scene and what it means within the film and outside of the film within the comics as well, and how they paid that off uh, was was a, a a moment of sheer genius. Um, I really like that they basically say time travel in films is bullshit, 
And, I mean, I think a lot of people going in were like, okay, they're going to somehow try and go back in time to reverse what happened. But no, they go back in time to just grab the stones to bring to the present, which, as, as, as much as you can try and understand the concept of time travel, that at least, you know, kind of makes sense, I guess. And it doesn't fuck around with timelines too much, because if there's one thing that Lord knows comic books do, is uh, they're pretty... Play, they play fast and loose with the ideas of parallel dimensions and time travel and whatnot. Um, so this was, uh, uh, it, it at least kind of made logical sense for what they were going for. Um, and I'll tell you the one thing, like when the whole bit with Thanos uh, appearing in the present reality and like raining down the hell and fire after um, they reversed the, like, the original snap of the fingers, I kind of clocked on, like, okay, this is like the final act of the film. And even though the film is three hours long, it does not feel like a three-hour film. That thing fucking flies by. It really did. I didn't check my... I think there's not many movies where I don't, like, just have a little glance at my watch, because I'm usually thinking about, like, the trains by my cinema once every half an hour. So, like, I think, well, I wonder how much longer is left. I didn't even do that. I did not look at my watch at one point during this movie. I was just... I was just gobsmacked at the end of it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I'd seen. It's it's so overwhelming. Yeah, I, I always compare it to. Um, there's not many films I've seen that are around the three hour mark in the cinema. The one I always think of is Interstellar, which felt about twelve hours long. Um, and this just comparison, <laughs> yeah. just yeah, it, it flies Were you by. there, um, Mark, when we went to the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises? With I think it was like our friend Dan Groom booked us tickets to that. No, I was. Did you come? No. So that is to this day the only, and I know Dave did the midnight showing, and I mean, I guess he's more hardcore than me if you want to think of it this way. But it's the only one time I've ever done it, and I'm never doing it again because you get your, you get in there, it starts half an hour, so you start at half midnight. Dark Knight Rises, I mean, it's kind of a bloated movie anyway, but I was so tired. For the last half an hour of that movie, I just did not care what was happening. And I, after I came out of the movie, I hated the movie. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> hate, I don't hate myself to stay up till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning watching a film. It's just not happening. Yeah, I'd rather have a nice sleep and then go and see it the next day after work or during the day if I've got the day off work. But yeah, I... I rewatched it afterwards and I was like, I like the movie, but yeah, I, I, I can't be dealing with that. But the point is, like, these are films, a lot of those films are just, they feel long. You, you, you do feel it, but you didn't in this. Every, everything was smart. Like, e even the opening of just, like, the instant shock of, like, oh, right, we're, we're figuring out we can, we can go and find Thanos and, and do something about it. And then they go find him and then, they realise that the stones are gone. Thor just cuts his head off. And, like, within the first 20 minutes of the movie, Thanos is dead. And you kind of feel like, what the fuck are they going to do for the rest of this movie? Like, how is this going to play out? And, uh, I mean, even, like, my brain at that point was like, are they going to tease a fake credits here? <laughs> just because that would have been, like, really, really audacious to do something like that. But, obviously, they didn't. And then, yeah, that... The whole timelines thing I thought was really artfully done. Um, like, not only did they have the debate about how the timelines worked amongst themselves, but when um, Hulk was trying to get the, the, the time stone from the ancient one, 
and and she and him had like a very and she sort of knocked him out of his consciousness and into Bruce. They had a very reasoned discussion about how the timelines worked and why it was imperative to go back. And it didn't feel like just random exponential dialogue that you don't necessarily need. Like it, it, it's just like the exposition is what I'm looking for. Not exponential. It's like, it's not like, you know, that scene in Wayne's world where they go outside and the guy explains where the limo is going to be like for a joke or whatever. But they, they made it feel kind of natural to the understanding of the characters and the way it all worked. And then little did you know that at the end of the movie, they were going to use the ability for somebody having to go back to sort of set up like one of the most like beautifully done uh, heartfelt moments. And again, in any superhero movie that you've ever seen, possibly in any movie that you'd seen between Cap and, and, and Peggy going back in time. Like I loved that. I loved that they ended the movie on that. Like imagine ending a, an action like packed adrenaline fueled movie on two people dancing to like old timey music, mm-hmm. you know, in the fifties in in the house. Like it's just, it's a, it's crazy. Like that they, they do stuff like that and pull it off. And <sighs> what did you think of Tony's death? Yeah, I think it was, I, I think that going in everyone th- at least thought that, okay, either Captain America or Iron Man dies, or both of them, or whatever. Because you know this is this is the end of this. This is the finale of Phase Three, and you know we're really now at the point where we, we're going to transition into the the, the next uh, branch of the the MCU. Um, so the way they handled it with him, you know, it all kind of goes back to what was said in the original Avengers about you know he isn't the one that's ready to kind of lay down the line to body on the line. Um, and he obviously he did that at the end of the original Avengers, but here he makes that sacrifice, uh, and I think it's it was very powerfully done, uh, but also done with the you know him just saying I am Iron Man, uh, you know playing off of the original Iron Man film. It's just it really kind of comes full circle with everything, and uh, yeah, I think that was really well done. That was obviously a tearjerker, like again with Peter Parker there and that kind of father son relationship and they how they build that up over the movies uh yeah i i, uh, I they really hit home on, on just about every aspect of the film um and even changing between the, the the tonal shifts from the humor to the sadness and sorrow like you know you go halfway through the film and you've got the the death of black widow and you know they still manage to bring it back and there's still time for um this epic triumph triumphantness of the rest of the film there's still humor um, specifically, specifically with Thor's character, so yeah, it's it's a, a real accomplishment for what they did, and the fact that they filmed both of those films within pretty much the same period over the course of a year, and to have all of that in there, and you know, they're two very good films. You know, Infinity War is an excellent film, uh, and Endgame, Endgame just takes that and and just that whole one-two package of those two films. It, oh man, yeah. It's a triumph of scale. Yeah. Nothing's ever been done on that scale before. That There's no movie in existence that has been set up by 20 other movies. Like, that's just not been done. Uh, give it time. We've still got the uh, DC universe. We've still got the Dark universe. There's plenty of time. Look, even as successful as Marvel are, 
if they got even half as much hype for like the next big bad in the Marvel universe, whoever they do, if they're going to go like Galactus or something, say like they need to set that up over the course of like another decade, basically to get people as excited as they are for that. I mean, is it even, is it even possible for them to build up and to get to this kind of crescendo again? Like this really feels like a a light, well, I say light in the bottle, but we're talking 22 fucking films, but I just don't see how it's even possible to come anywhere close. It probably, it probably doesn't seem like it, but I don't want to doubt them because they've done nothing but deliver. Like Kevin Feige is the fucking postman. He always delivers. He always manages to get everything in a nice way, like a nice order to to just make sure that people come out in the movies. I think the other thing as well though is the issue that like how do you build on that in terms of scale? Uh, and I think this is one of the issues that um the the Batman trilogy had in terms of building on the scale of it. Yeah. And like the uh, you know the level of disaster, and like how do you top you know the entire universe or half the universe being wiped out with the possibility then of the entire universe being wiped out? You can't get bigger than that, um, other than the actual enemy itself being bigger, and, um, and in which in Galactus' case, which is it would be. yeah, of course, but you're still dealing with the same you know uh, level of consequence and the, the scales of disaster. So um, yeah. Yeah, we'll see, I guess. And it was often sort of charged at Marvel before we got to all of this big-scale stuff that some of the bad guys in the movies weren't necessarily kind of as threatening or as memorable as you'd want them to be. That's always been the issue with the MCU films, Um, any of the, 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 not smaller ones, but the, the ones with less of a kind of thread that ties, you know, the bigger MCU universe together. Uh, whether you think of like the Dark World um, or Iron Man Three, or, you know, you, I don't want to talk about the Mandarin because uh, they forget. <laughs> yeah, me and Dave have had that debate before. Yeah, but a, lot, a lot of those films have a, a, a boss or an enemy or whatever that just doesn't have the same impact, and that's because it's all we're all just kind of waiting for Thanos to turn up, and that's that's like one of the the few critiques you can throw at the MCU that does have any merit or weight to it. Yeah. I, I, I would say, though, what changed it around probably was just how great Killmonger was in Black Panther. True. I mean, certainly towards the end, they had a couple of really good ones. Killmonger, uh, yeah. Michael Keaton was fucking incredible in Homecoming. Um and it was very good, yeah. And it's interesting because, like, with those two, they're not, like, um, you know, superhuman-type characters. You know, Michael Keaton is just a guy that was, like, a construction worker. Um, and it's amazing how much more impact his character had because of how... And that's kind of the thing with a lot of the MCU films. Like, the most powerful moments of the characters or parts with those characters, stuff that isn't in the superhero element. It's when you kind of draw on the, the more real stuff. And I think that's, like... You know, where we talk about uh, the Winter Soldier being one of the better uh, Cats America films, because a lot of it is just it's it feels more real, you know. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, I just hope in real life no one ever builds giant like kill drone things and puts them in the sky. <laughs> That'd be good. I would. I would prefer if they didn't. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Endgame. Go and see it. It's good. Everyone's I'm already f- fucking seen it. It's made a billion dollars. 
everyone's already seen it, but also if you haven't seen it and you did listen to that, like there is no justice that me or Mark Robinson are gonna do to that movie that is gonna be better than you going to watch it. Like it's a, it's a triumph, an absolute triumph of of art if you want to refer to it as art. I've I probably don't think I'll ever have as good of an experience in a cinema unless I'm watching my own film that I've made uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like oh, it's my film up there <laughs> like I'm never gonna feel like that again so yeah go go capture that go capture that moment and enjoy it beautifully said on that mo- on that note uh, let's move on to what we have been playing this week hey check it out I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2 Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Jack, talk to me about Baba is you. I see. I mean, Baba is not only me. Baba can be crab. Baba is love. Baba is push. Baba is sometimes lava. Like, Baba is you is, like, one of the, like, most minimalist yet at the same time detailed and brilliant puzzle games you're ever likely to play so you are baba which is just like a little white creature type thing uh and you are trying to win every level and in most levels to win is to get to the flag and to get to the flag you will need to quite literally push uh you push like words that are on the level to define how it is that you're going to win. So for instance, there's a level, there's lava, and it will say lava is melt. And you will have the words lava and the words melt, which you can move around, and then you can put them either side of is to change how it works. But what you really need to do is find where it says push, and then you get lava is push. And then you push the lava out of the way, uh, where it was a river that was blocking you from getting to the flag to win, and then you go and celebrate. And just imagine that, but with a whole bunch of different possible clauses. What it is, really, is a scaled-down version of coding, because what you try and do is try and find, uh, at first, one or two different clauses, but by the end, multiple clauses for you to, to find out exactly how it is that you get to your end goal and your end goal is always to win so yeah it's just it's minimalist but at the same time it really requires you to think uh and it's it's done in a very simplistic art style like it's not particularly easy on the eye like it it looks a little bit like something somebody drew drew in paint but it doesn't matter because it's just it's so interactive and compelling and you're rewriting the rules of your own game as you're playing it. Like you are coding, you are programming the game to change it so you can win. Anybody that like loves to cheat in games is essentially like you are cheating when you change things to to your advantage so you can win the game. It's just, it's class. I don't know if you guys had had talked about it or if you played it or if you see much of it. I can't remember if, Dave has spoken about it. I know he's definitely played it. Uh, I haven't had a chance to, to play it yet. Um, but it, it has 
a very it's it's just it seems like a very unique game and it seems like a game that um is is almost the best term I can say is like an un-game, where it doesn't really feel like a game, but it is obviously still a game. And like from the way you were explaining it, it definitely does have the flow and logic thought process behind coding. You know, it sounds like that as you were saying that. So, um, yeah, it sounds really... When you explain it to someone, it sounds like something you just wouldn't want to play, but it, I think it's one of those things that when you actually kind of get into it and you start to figure out it makes sense, kind of like The Witness, um, once you're actually there in the environment playing it, it all makes sense and you get the full experience of what you're trying to get. Yeah, it's it's brilliantly unique in that sense. And it's it's kind of nice because obviously the the game, that, the title, of, spoilers, but the title of this episode is is another game that I think is is a brilliantly unique game, and it kind of so it's kind of nice that we get to talk about two things on here, but that they've got that in common that when they came out, you just think when you play it, I haven't really played anything like this before, and it's quite rare that you get to that point in video games. Like there's a reason that there are genres of video games, and that when you go to every single store for a video game, you click you know okay i want to do action or sport and i mean yeah this is a puzzle game but just to sort of describe this as a puzzle game is almost a disservice to it like it involves like a a lot of unique thinking to get you to to the end in a lot of levels like to change the way your in, in very environment of the game is you are constantly evolving your environment it's just yeah it's it's a work of of minimalist art and uh I, the whoever came up with it is an absolute genius in my eyes i've got to think they're a coder <laughs> because there's no way you just do this game without having like some knowledge of like how to do clauses and stuff so yeah uh Barbara, you go and play it and I, I don't think you'll be disappointed or even just watch 30 seconds of someone else that you know playing it or maybe on youtube and you'll be like okay i need to play this uh, it it looks like a great idea Playing it on Switch? Oh, of course. You got if you're gonna if you're gonna rock it, you gotta rock it on Switch. <laughs> um, Mark, uh, have you been playing something on uh, on the old Switch Rooney? I have recently. I've been playing two things on Switch. So I did talk a lot about Cuphead last week, so I'm not going to talk too much more about it. But I did finish <laughs> it, um, and more than actually me playing it, I've been enjoying in our little group chat both Dave and friend to show Matt Niner just fucking losing their shit trying to just get through that game and survive it. Um, now, Mark, am I a coward, a massive custody coward, for not wanting to put myself through what looks like some pretty sheer misery yes. by trying to beat things like King Dice yes, or the Giant Bee? Yes, you are. You absolutely are. By <laughs> absolute coward. You gaming coward. <laughs> yeah. No, in, in fairness, though, I, I can understand, but it is kind of... It's the one instance where when someone says to me about, look, you don't understand the joy or fun of playing like Dark Souls and the sheer rush you get when you defeat a boss until you do it. And that's fine and all, except Dark Souls can go fuck itself because Cuphead is just... Look at it. Look at it. It's beautiful. Yeah, um, I mean, c could you have more diametrically opposed looks for games than Bubba as you and Cuphead? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and just the more I play it this time round, I think... The thing with the first time round when I played it um, around Dave's is I just wanted to get through the game as quickly as possible. Past partially because 
I knew there were a few people on Twitter that were playing it and they'd started about a week before me so I just wanted to have the, the ego stroke of saying that I finished it before them uh, and also because I, Dave was enjoying me suffer too much and I wanted to just get through it so you know I he couldn't enjoy that um, yeah I mean there's a lot of life that you just let pass you by and you don't actually give a shit and there's one of the, the the qualities that I really admire about you is how little a lot of big things seem to phase you but like when you set your mind to it in a situation like this I, there is like a steeliness about you that really does amuse me it is. as to how much like, like I'm gonna fucking win this I, one of those occasions is go-karting like you <laughs> you turn into a different guy when you go go-karting and, and seemingly from what you're doing with Cuphead I can see that that is the the fiery Mark Robinson yeah, coming out sometimes there's a tragic level of competitive competitiveness that will appear um, but I think it's just the, the game is so like just visually and the audio is so appealing like it, it would be just it's an insult to not complete it you know like I just want to see everything the game has to offer because every single inch of that game has been constructed and developed uh, to just be just it's there's nothing else like it you know there are other games that are running guns and um, uh you know, just boss rush type games, like they all exist, but nothing looks the way that this does. And I went back and I rewatched, uh, Mark Brown has a video about Cuphead. And one of the things he talks about is that you don't beat a boss in Cuphead, you survive a boss in Cuphead. And that's where the rush comes from. And I think it's a similar thing with Dark Souls as well. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's about... the old school arcade thing. It's like where the games are actually designed to fuck you over, to get you to cough up money. But you know this is something you can beat, and yeah. you're sitting there on your couch just trying to do it over and over. And it's not and about over. it's not about beating the boss; it's just about outlasting the boss. But what I like about the game is, ninety five percent of the time, the game is fair in that you know every boss when they go to do an attack, there is like a visual cue. So there's a good chance the first time you see the visual cue and you see the attack, you're going to get hit by it, but you know for next time. Like, for example, there's the level with the pirate ship, and on the final stage, the ship itself, um, it just opens its mouth and lets out a fucking giant um, beam that takes you know takes up half the, the level. And the only way to avoid it is by ducking. And you have no, no way to know when it's coming or what attack is coming at you. And certainly by the first time you get to the final stage, you're going to have one hit point left. And so you're probably going to die. But as soon as you take that, you're like, right, you fucker. I know for next time I have to duck. And because you've gotten up to that point, the next time you get up to that point, you get to it, you know, a little bit quicker than, you know, the first 20 times you died trying to get through the first two stages. <laughs> and it's just that trial and error progress until, you know, the first time you get to that final stage with maybe two hit points now and you duck the, the projectile beam the first time and just the adrenaline kicks in and, uh, Oh my god, that game! Uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I, without question, it was my game of the year when it came out in twenty seventeen, and it, it's it's easily become a top five game for me of all time. Um, I feel like the um, I think was it third in our game of the year that year. I believe so. Yeah, I feel like the third spot in the game of the year is kind of like the author Mark Robinson spot. Usually. Where it's like, the, the 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 best like most artful game of the year in the way that it kind of delivers and oh, not I think necessarily I think we gave it to Celeste last year. 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. Those are like those are Mark Robinson TM games. Like, and uh, Cuphead. I don't think there's ever been a more definitive like version of what a sort of game I would expect you to love than Cuphead. Like, it, it's just yeah, it's right up your straza. As yeah, it were. oh, it's it's peak Robinson without question. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to the DLC uh, as well, and I'm currently trying to go through the game on the expert mode, which is. A challenge, to say the least. I mean, that is just sadism. Yeah. Really. There, there, there's no other... I mean, you could watch Fifty Shades of Grey, or you could watch Mark try and get through Cuphead on Xbox. Something like I that. know what I find more erotic yeah. anyway. So. But also, I might pick up the MC5 this weekend as well, and actually start playing through that, because... Um, did you play Devil May Cry 5? I'm not... This is the thing. I've never been a huge Devil May Cry fan. Really? I'm not a massive hack and... There's a few genres that you just do kind of... slash. Yeah, I'm not... So, oh. the two things I don't like are hack and slash and bullet hell. Like, those are the two things that kind of put me off. Did you... I'm very much... I like a break it down into its constituent parts kind of gamer. Where well, did you I, did you play Metal Gear Revengeance? Because that has that break it down into its constituent parts in the fact that Raiden breaks down an enemy into four thousand constituent parts when he slices them into that many pieces. I never played Revengeance. No, it, uh, it, I, it is terrible. I will say that, but it has a charm to how bad it is. Yeah, well, that's kind of the deal with Raiden. Is like <laughs> no one actually fucking likes that guy, but he does have charm to him. Apart from the one person that shouts Jack every time you die in Metal Gear Solid Two, the one that's meant to be his yeah. missus, but and that, then it creeps me out because then every time I die, someone is shouting my name like Jack. But that, but that is also the game that, like five, six years prior to Donald Trump coming to power, has the president in the game say he'll make America great again, and it's oh boy. I mean, we, at some point we were so close uh me dave and and keith brony friend of the show of breaking down metal gear solid 2 and just how ridiculously ahead of its time it was in the way it talks about so many things um and you've got all of the societal things in there but even little things like they're talking about memes and like mimetic theory basically in the game yeah and 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 I was doing that before. I mean, obviously that we had the internet, but we didn't really have the the, the word meme flying around in popular culture as readily as it is now. But yeah, anyway, I don't want to talk we have about gone well off the track here. <laughs> Dave, yeah, Dave, Dave is listening to this right now. Like, don't you dare do Metal Gear Solid Two, um, Mark. You've been playing another game. Um, yeah. What is the other game that you've been playing? Because I know very little about it, so I am the audience right now. So. This isn't a game with Robin Williams, uh, but it is a game called Hook, and uh, I've been playing this on Switch. I don't know if it's available on any other platform. Um, it's very, very cheap. It's only a couple of quid, if that, and it's uh, it's a kind of minimalist puzzle game that looks like it was built in Unity. Um, and the very simple concept of it so far is that you have um, a couple of lines that um, ex expand outside of a circle. And by pressing that circle, you like bring the lines back within in the circle, um, and that's the idea. That is, every level is to remove everything to bring it back into that circle. But um, you might have like multiple circles on the screen, and you have to kind of pick in which order you have to remove circles. Um, and the idea behind the, the the hook term is that 
sometimes you'll have these lines cross over each other or you might have a line that is at a point and then there's another line that comes up towards it um, but then it does kind of like a semicircle around it and then carries on uh, which means that if you try to withdraw the line that has the semicircle on it it gets stuck effectively um, mark I'm going to stop you right there. I feel like this is something that if people want to see it, they would have to Google because I've just looked at it and like what I was imagining uh, from what you were describing versus the way it looks is like night and day. <laughs> Essentially, it looks like a circuit board. Yeah, actually, that's that's a really, really good way of, of describing it. Um, it. Yeah, it has a, a circuitry board type look to it. Um, and... The, the, the idea behind it again is that you just you have to um, retract these lines in a specific order and if you don't do them in the correct order or these lines get kind of caught on each other you have to start the level over again uh, is it like you're completing a circuit or are you collecting you're collecting the circuit you're not completing it you're not bringing stuff out you're bringing everything in effectively yeah is um, it like the circuitry puzzles from Spider-Man? <laughs> no, it's it's not like them at all, actually. Okay. Um, and it does what all great puzzle games do, in that it takes a simple idea, a single concept, and it expands on that. Um, and it adds new bells and whistles while still keeping that principal concept in mind. And so I've only played it for about, I want to say, an hour or so. Uh, but even within that... I see. So it's kind of like you're, you're clicking points to withdraw, um, to withdraw your hooks. So you've got your hook that you're trying to sort of get off, off the circuit, what, what looks like a circuit. And you're trying to get the flow so you can withdraw them without disturbing other things that are then going to make it difficult for you further on down the line and make it impossible for you to complete the puzzle yeah so every everything you're doing is like a retraction so your dot the dot points you're retracting a hook into the dot okay that is it it, it looks very it, it kind of looks like something that you would see on the back of the times newspaper yeah, um, it's got a little bit of that but it's it's uh, very calming like it's a it, very chilled out game it certainly um, looks like it. Yeah, and like even as a puzzle game, um, you know, the, so far the challenge hasn't expanded to a point where I'm getting frustrated because I'm only about an hour into it, and I don't know how long the game actually is. Um, but I could see why it is a lovely antidote to uh, the, the, the hell that Cuphead <laughs> is must be causing yeah. you. Yeah, it's a little bit of that, um, but it does. It, the, the new mechanics I found so far is that like you may have a, a circle with a wire um, or part of the, the, the circuit line, shall we say, and um, you can turn the circle in a, a, like a 90 degrees direction and this will kind of either like move to a new line. And so sometimes if you've got a part of a line that you're trying to withdraw, like the, the circle uh, might expand into two different lines and depending on which way you have the circle, depending on which part of the line it's connected to, it will only withdraw the bit that's connected and the other part will stay where it is. So sometimes you're then having to kind of look like, kind of like in chess where you have to look three or four uh, moves ahead here, you're having to look at like three or four different things and say, okay, if I withdraw at this point, which parts of this circuit that's all kind of connected by five or six different points, which of these are going to remove, uh, withdraw um, first 
or what can I withdraw first or what's going to get caught. So you kind of have to look at the whole board uh, to, to you know figure out you know, what you need to do first. So it's good. I'm liking it. It's it's got enough of uh, it's it's requiring enough of you to think logically. Um, and it's not something that you can just straight up brute force your way through. There is a little bit of you actually have to look at what you're trying to do. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. I like it. It's, it's very simple. It's very elegant, very clean. Uh, and it's very cheap. So, again, it's only a couple of quid. And of all, as always, it's perfect on the Switch. I find it amusing that we've talked about three games. One of them looks like a lovely throwback to sort of Disney-era animation, right? Lovely, nice, clean, beautiful-looking Disney-era animation. And then there's a game that looks like a circuit puzzle and a game that is essentially about coding. And the game about coding and the game of a circuit puzzle are much easier and much less stressful to play than the Disney-looking cartoon game. Uh, video games are weird, ladies and gentlemen. That's all I'm going to tell you. And on that bombshell... Uh, shall we move on to the news this week, Jack? Let's do it. The news. News on the mark. Jack, lay some fresh scoops on me, my no, friend. This this isn't even a scoop. It's just the Sonic the Hedgehog movie trailer. <laughs> Wow, yeah. I mean, that is a, that is a thing that is happening, isn't it? Where do you want to start? I mean, I don't know if you can start. <laughs> it it it's first of all, Jim Carrey looks glorious <laughs> as Robotnik. I love him so much. He... And I know that he's going to go fully to wacky town in this role. Like we're going to get like a huge gigantic Jim Carrey performance in this. It, it, it might be the only thing that saves it. Everyone's kind of banking on him doing a real kind of Raoul Julia M. Bison type performance to, to save this or give it any kind of redeeming qualities. Um, but it's, it's going to be less of a notable thing because, you know, that is about 80% of Jim Carrey's career has been doing those types of performances. Um, but it is Dr. Yeah. Robotnik, so you kind of you need to camp it up because he's a fucking ridiculous character. So yeah. I do think that uh, Jim Carrey is an inspired choice of casting. Um, but it also kind of really hammers home this idea. Like, everything about this film is 90s as fuck other than the CGI. Um, although even some of the CGI looks about 90s as well. Like, Gangster's Paradise, Sonic the Hedgehog, Jim Carrey... <laughs> Yeah, when you put it like that, I mean, like, w which Spice Girl is going to cameo in this movie? I'm like, why, why, why Gangster's Paradise? There's no, there's no connection you can put between these two. It's, I've seen over the last couple of years, um, the other one being the real obvious one, the Suicide Squad, when they used Bohemian Rhapsody, that like when a film or a, a company or a developer, uh, uh, film studio has this film and they have no idea how the fuck to present it or they know it's terrible they just slap on any fucking random song that's popular and people know and just hope for the best that maybe this trailer might appeal to some people but it's just the juxtaposition between Sonic the Hedgehog and fucking Coolio it, I don't know yeah one know. of my favourite facts about Coolio is that he played in, in, in Dave's and your former hometown of Newbridge in Ireland, which is a tiny town in Kildare that nobody 
probably outside of a tri-county area has ever heard of and he's just doing a gig upstairs in a pub which does amazing ribs uh like so that's where coolio is at this point in time is sonic is sonic the next one to be performing upstairs at the uh the newbridge pub possibly and what the fuck is cyclops doing in this film as well like <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you, mate. I'm sorry. I feel like you're coming to me to try and explain the logic behind any of these things, but I am absolutely as bemused as you on all of them. Yeah. So uh, I was just reading over as well. Um, so, like, James Marston's like the, the lead uh, and, like, protagonist besides Sonic. And apparently, Paul Rudd was originally in talks to play that role. And that oh, made. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, that may have like given this some semblance of hope, but uh, this whole film looks fucking dreadful. And the, we haven't even got to the fact that the actual kind of character model for Sonic itself, um, why does he have human teeth? Again, I don't really have a good answer for you, but I think if he had like freakishly sharp teeth, then maybe he wouldn't be as good of a merchandising opportunity like that sonic looks do you know what i feel like that sonic looks like uh a world cup mascot that's what i kind of thought when i saw the initial model of it and now we've seen a bit of the way like the sonic model is moving and stuff it, it just looks like it's been it looks created. like a small boy that's been yeah but it's t- to say hey kids come hang out with this blue fucking non-spiky hedgehog like he's your best friend you know there's nothing like weird and like any edginess to him he's about as edgy as a satsuma yeah Uh, and what really doesn't help as well is the fact that we've had for the last three months or so now trailers for the detective pikachu film which has managed to tick all the right boxes in the tone the humor and most importantly, I think to some degree, the actual character models uh, for you know bringing these characters to life in a in a real world setting. Yeah, it's a noir movie about Pokemon. Like, and how the hell do you do that? And also the fact that it you know Sonic, all they had to do was get one character model right. The Pokemon film, they've had to get you know like however many, and they all look like awesome. You know, Jigglypuff looks awesome. Um, fucking Greninja looks awesome. You know, yeah. they all look fucking dope. Mr. Mime looks absolutely as creepy as you would expect Mr. Mime to be. Fucking right. And they got one character they had to make and they fucked it up royally. With all this said, I'm still going to see it. Look, it's going to be a train wreck probably, but I'm I'm along for the ride. I mean, we were all alive in the 90s, showing our age. Um, so, like... It, it's kind of a staple like you have to see it i hope they really 90s it up like they go they take every possible 90s thing they can and just chuck it in because 90s retro is the thing now i i feel like i'm fine with 90s retro overtaking 80s retro which was overused but when it starts to be 2000s retro mark that's when it's going to really get tough for me i think <laughs> that's when i know like my time has has passed if I can't even like enjoy the pop culture or what people think is retro anymore. But yeah, uh, don't know. Sonic question mark. I had a question mark before the trailer. And normally when you've got a confusion as to whether you think a film is going to be good or not, you, the trailer normally gives you a sort of better idea. But now, honestly, I'm just more fucking confused. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, moving on. Epic acquires Psionics, uh, and apparently at the time, so the story's been updated since then, uh, Eurogamer reported that they will remove Rocket League from sale on Steam later this year. Uh, Bad move. This got updated, uh, and Epic has uh, offered an update on this uh, confusingly, originally confusingly worded statement that was issued to the press earlier that day. Um, that basically... In its initial press release, Epic wrote that the PC version of Rocket League will come to the Epic Game Store in late 2019. In the meantime, it will continue to be available for purchases on Steam. Thereafter, it will continue to be supported on Steam for all existing purchases. Um, that combination of in the meantime and thereafter reading as if Rocket League's sale on Steam would continue only until it transitioned to the Epic Game Store later this year, which also kind of makes sense in like why would Epic purchase Psionics? It would be, well, let's have Rocket League you know, only available on our platform. Um, that just kind of makes sense. But in a new statement issued to US Gamer, uh, Epic has said that we are continuing to sell Rocket League on Steam and have not announced plans to stop selling the game there. Rocket League remains available for new purchases on Steam and long-term plans will be announced in the future. Um, so maybe whether that's uh, a way to just say for now, don't worry about it, uh, whether it was just that, that was never the case, which I don't believe. I still think that at some point Epic uh, Rocket League will be exclusive to the uh, to Epic uh, and for the Epic Game Store. Um, and I imagine this will be the start of, well, not the start, but the continuation of games being made available only on one platform or the other, whether it be Steam or Epic. Yeah, I don't... I feel like Rocket League is one of those things that just needs to be as cross-platform as possible. So when Rocket League really started building Steam, like imagine if, much like Fortnite, like the rapid growth of Fortnite, you can really attribute to the fact that it's just like, no, you, you don't need this to play that. You can play it on anything. Here's your phone, play it on that. Here's yeah. If Rocket League had done like that at the start, I think it would be even bigger of a deal than it is now. So taking Rocket League away at any point in the future seems like a really it seems like a bad move to me. Like if you own a property like that, you want everyone playing it as much as possible. Um and then you unfortunately probably end up making money through maybe microtransactions and stuff like that. But if people just want to play Rocket League as it is, they can. Um, yeah, I, I just don't see. Uh, I don't see the. I don't see the logic. Uh, even if you've got a competing thing, it's like if 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 I want to watch BT Sport now, Mark, I can get it on Sky Sports. If I want to watch Sky Sports and I've got BT, I can get it on there. So they're they're major competitors in this country for sport. Well, the thing is with this, like. Sinex have made all the money they need to make off of Rocket League and you know now being sold off to Epic they've made however much more money uh, and you know working under that company so um, it's more for here like it's a way for Epic to draw people towards their platform because Rocket League has a significantly large uh, player base and they're going to want to continue playing it so um, though with that said if it will remain available on Steam for those who already already purchased the game, uh, I don't see it being a thing where you know people are then going to go and buy it on the Epic Game Store if they already have it. So it is an interesting one. Um, I can just I don't know. 
I don't know what the, the end game here is for Epic other than just, hey, it's something they can purchase that they can own the rights to, whether it's, you know, if they do a Rocket League 2 at some point. Um, well, so I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if, if Epic versus Steam is going to be like Disney Plus versus Netflix level, but we'll see what happens. Indeed. Uh, PlayStation Plus games for May include, as I open up my browser, uh, What Remains of Edith Finch and Overcooked. Um, now, I'm, I think it, Edith Finch is a game that Dave was a very big fan of, and uh, I love Overcooked. I don't know if you've had a chance to play Overcooked at all, but it's, it's a real fun uh, local multiplayer game. Yeah, I've never played Overcooked. Uh, I, I've seen Overcooked played, but I've never personally been involved in it myself. What Remains of Edith Finch just seems like a really cool, um, sort of weird, mysterious, shady adventure game. And yeah, I'll, I'll probably download both. But then local multiplayer, for me, I, you know, I don't really necessarily have people around to play video games anymore now i'm in my early 30s which is depressing because that would be cool but yeah so i don't know when i would get an opportunity to play that yeah the people that like edith finch really like edith finch and overcooked to some degree you can still play on its own but yeah it's definitely one of those games that is best enjoyed when you've got at least one other person with you and you're kind of coordinating between the two of you about, okay, who's going to go and collect the, the burger buns? Who's going to fry the burgers? Who's going to chop the onions and kind of all bring it bring it all together? Um, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Edith Finch is like, you, you're, you, you get different viewpoints of characters as to how they relate, like living in the same house or part of a family as to how they relate to her. And then you sort of unpicking the, the mystery of what's going on with Edith Finch, right? Uh, I have no idea. I never played it. It's it's a game. So I between me and Dave, Dave is very much more of the walking simulator person. Um, so the only games of that note, that nature that I've been involved with in any way, um, I sat down and I watched him play Gone Home, um, and we kind of played through Firewatch together. And I didn't really like those games, but I again I like Cuphead. I like a game yeah. that has a little bit more immediacy to it. <laughs> You also don't like walking in real life, so walking simulators, you're probably thinking, what, this is what the hell's going true. This is also yeah. true. It really kind of touches the sensitive side of me that, no, I don't, yeah. don't like that. Um, this this one really caught my attention. All right, so there is a new Earthworm Jim game on the way, and it's being created by the, uh, the original creators of the game. But, Jack, do you know what the twist is? What's the twist, mate? I mean, so when I first saw the title, my twist was like, okay, it's going to be like uh, an endless runner on mobile or something. But no, it'll go one better than that. Um, to be able to play this game, you'll need a console called the Amico, which is the new Intellivision console that will be available in October 2020. Uh, for those of you who are not aware of what this is, Amico is set to be a console for exclusive retro-themed games, remakes, and new titles, such as the new Earthworm Jim. The console itself will cost anywhere between $150 to $180, with oh, downloadable death. games priced between $3 and $8. Uh, Tommy Tallarico, who is conveniently both Intellivision boss as well as Earthworm Jim 1 and 2's composer, will lead the project. 
nine other team members are on board. Uh, the team will hold a 20 minute live stream this Saturday on the 4th of May at 8 p.m. UK time to discuss the project and give away signed posters. So, do you remember the, the Ouya that came out a couple of years ago? No, I remember former Dutch defender Andre Ouya, but no. These two things are not linked in any way. So the Ouya, uh, for my own recollection, uh, just to get up who the hell developed that thing, um, the Ouya was uh, an Android-based microconsole um, that was founded, in, the project was founded in 2012. And the idea was it was a kind of a more affordable console that was based on, it was completely digital, and uh, it was kind of based, targeted at indie developers, you know, smaller games, cheaper prices, that kind of stuff. And it bombed, it died a death, partially because the console was terrible, um, but there was just no, it's just, a, it was a commercial failure. I see yeah. this and I kind of, I kind of see the same thing. Now, it at least has one more, like it has an actual kind of notable game at the front of it, being Earthworm Jim, who just didn't have anything. But I don't know, like we'll in about, uh, for also the controllers look terrible, um, but in two years or in a year's time, we'll probably know more about the, uh, the PS5 and whatever the Xbox is coming out with. The Switch is going from strength to strength and the Switch at this point is like the indie console of choice. You know, everything is coming out on there and if you're going to play an indie game, I'm going to play it on my Switch. Yep. I don't see where the market for this thing is. No, I mean... When I hear in television, it it sounds like something like you know in the, the Simpsons when they need to buy a new TV and they go to the Shelbyville Outlet Mall and there's yeah. like brand names there like Sony and Panaphonics, and Homer's like, ooh, a genuine Panaphonics. Like that's what in television sounds like. It sounds like somebody has pirated something and made it. Um, yeah. But do you do you know remember what... that? Go on. No, I was going to say, do you do you know what in television? Do you know it's, it's intelligent intelligent television? See what they I, there? Yeah. I see. So uh, when it comes to portmanteaus, I do I do usually like them, but that one is just like, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. That's, yeah, I, I see mean, what they if did. you weren't aware, like the Intellivision itself was uh, was a, a, a console that came out uh, in the late seventies, I believe, uh, and it was like the main competitor to the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. And one of these you'll have heard of, and one of these you won't have heard of. Yeah, how'd um, that go? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it was successful. It did well for itself. But, like, again, I mean, I've seen one in person and the the controller. It's like, it's a fucking, it's a handheld phone with a, a, a circle that you can spin around on the bottom of it. And in no way does, like, it has about 15 fucking buttons on it for a console that was released in 1977, I think. Like, you do not need that many fucking buttons. Like, no console, yeah. no controller these days needs that many buttons. Yeah, for concept, that was the same year that the first Star Wars film came out. Oh, yeah, true, true. Yeah, like, so, yeah. Um, remember that argument I made where I was like, why would you want to take Rocket League away from people? If you're making an Earthworm Jim game, I mean, yeah, you want maybe, you're like, well, no one's going to buy an Intellivision if. It's like, well, if you really want people to play your Earthworm Jim game, put it on the Switch, put it on the Xbox One, put it on the PS4, put it on whatever you need to put it on, put it on the iOS store, put it on the Play Store, put it on the Android store, just put it out there. Um, and I, yeah, if people want an Intellivision, I don't think the 
only place to play the new Earthworm Jim game is going to be that much of a selling point to people to well, part with hundreds of pounds. You know what this is? It's all about having the killer app, you know, the thing that's going to draw people to your console. Um, the most obvious one was Halo for the original Xbox console. You know, that Microsoft and the history of Xbox doesn't have anywhere near the success it does it has now if Halo doesn't exist, you know? Are you comparing Earthworm Jim... New, the new Earthworm Jim to, to Halo. No, I'm making a point here. I'm not comparing Master Chief is Earthworm Jim. What I'm saying is that Earthworm Jim is not that killer app. You know, this is it not is gonna not. this is not gonna draw people in their thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions to purchase the whatever the fuck this thing is called again. What was it called again? Yeah. In television. No, the Amico. The Amico. The Amico. Uh, I don't think this is gonna be drawing people to the Amico. Uh, as much as I enjoy Earthworm Jim and but me and Dave did a, a book club on Earthworm Jim not too long ago. Like, I really like Earthworm Jim. I love that original game, and I love the cartoon. But I'm not buying a fucking 150-quid console just to play Earthworm Jim. Yeah, Amico means a friend, like a male friend in Italian, just in case you're wondering where that comes from. I can't I can't segue that into our last thing. Uh, so yeah, so... Oh, Mark, wait, yeah, no, are, Notch has no friends. There we go. There you go. There's, there's yeah. my segue. Uh, Notch will not be included in Minecraft's 10-year anniversary plans um, because, I mean, have you read anything Notch has said lately? Yeah. Uh, He's become problematic. Yeah. Uh, so Microsoft confirmed that uh, he won't be involved uh, due to his controversial comments and opinions. <laughs> So, just to put this into perspective, uh, Notch released Minecraft to the public on the 17th of May 2009. Uh, Microsoft uh, bought the rights to the game in 2014 for $2.5 billion. So, you know, Notch made a billionaire, good for him. Uh, they'll be celebrating the Blockbuster's first decade next month, and there'll be a special press event at Minecraft developer Mo Yang's Stockholm studio on the 17th of May, focusing on the past, present, and exciting future. Um, Is it Mo Yang? Like, I've never heard anyone actually say it, whether it's Mo Yang or Mojang. I I'm gonna guess there's a silent J in there, but like yeah, like the one at the start of Yogging. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Notch has had no involvement with Minecraft since selling the game five years ago, and some wondered if Microsoft would uh, extend an invitation to the man responsible for creating the global phenomenon on his tenth birthday. But as you can imagine, as he has gone full, tilted, alt-right, red pill, fucking conspiracy theory crazy, uh, they will not be extending uh, an olive branch. I mean, if you've got that much money, though, do you, it, does this really hurt you? Or are you just like, yeah, whatever? I mean, it goes without saying that, like, really... Here is a man who money cannot buy you happiness because everything I see about him on Twitter and his opinions, like I, I have to think he's actually miserable. Mm, I don't know. It, 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 I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it much. So I mean, that's obviously that's the way to to get through life. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I was reading. Um, the, the comments about the story on, on Eurogamer and it's one of the few times where it's always weird when you see like the whole comment section completely unified on like the decision made uh, and pretty much every single person was like well yeah of course why the fuck would you ever invite this awful human being and uh, there was like one or two comments 
where you had one person who had a gif of like a person using dollar bills to wipe away their tears, which was just downvoted to oblivion and rightly so. And there was another person who made a comment about what, you know, Notch is not uh, not able to express his opinions. And it's just like, he is available. He is more than uh, welcome to express his opinions. But that doesn't mean Microsoft needs to be anywhere fucking near him yeah. when it comes to this event. Well, 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 Microsoft are expressing their opinion that they don't like his opinions and they don't want him involved in the thing that they now own. Yeah. So... But then, like, uh, you know, there were comments about, well, you know, Microsoft and... Um, Minecraft, this is a family-friendly thing. It's like, no, this is not about being a family-friendly thing. This is just about whether you're a, a, a bad person or not. And Notch is apparently... But, but even that, it's like, everyone everyone makes a choice. He made a choice to say the things he said. They're making a choice to not endorse those comments. Simple. Amen. Amen, brother. So Yeah, uh, there's free speech on both sides. So, yeah, apparently uh, he has been removed from their Christmas card list and... I'm not sad about yeah. this at all. But also downvoted man wiping away tears with dollar bills is kind of accurate because I'm sure he probably doesn't give that much of a shit. Probably not, no. So, uh, that is done. Let us, let us quickly do the release date roundup. First of all, we forgot to do this last week, but it was announced that the Cult Cell Shaded Shooter 13 is coming to Switch in November. Um, it's actually well, it's coming to PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC, and it's getting a complete remake treatment, which has Dave very excited because he loves 13. This is a game again that we've done on uh, the Book Club feature way back when. Um, it's it's got its flaws, but it's still a very unique original game. I don't know if you've ever had anything, uh, any knowledge of this game at all, Dave. Uh, sorry, Jack. That's all right. Still getting used to it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> still new guy. Um, so I remember uh, my very first girlfriend's brother playing Thirteen, and that's the only time I've ever seen it like be played. And I think was it it was on GameCube back in the day. Uh, I remember it on PS2. That's, okay, that's where I remember seeing it. Maybe it was on PS2 then, but yeah, I remember playing it and just thinking, "Wow, this thing looks glorious." It was like that and um, Beautiful Joe. I remember two games at that time that just struck me as, "Wow, this is an incredible-looking artistic game, and it's really cool." But I never got round to playing it. So the fact that it's coming to Switch of all of the consoles that you just listed makes it very easy for me at some point if I've got a train journey to a random part of the country I can play some 13 mm -hmm. and uh, yeah that, that sounds pretty cool uh, like more stuff coming to Switch as well as PS4, Xbox One and PC is the Castlevania Anniversary Collection uh, which yep. looks pretty cool although this really seems like a way for Konami to fill their pockets as they have literally nothing else to release um, and Pro Evo doesn't really feel like the competitor to FIFA that it once was. Anyway, um, yeah, Castlevania Anniversary Collection, May the 16th, will include Castlevania 1, 2, Belmont's Revenge, Castlevania 3, Dracula's Curse, and Super Castlevania 4. So that is four games. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. Oh, and no, sorry, there's a few other things as well. Castlevania Bloodlines, which was for the uh, Sega Mega Drive, 
uh, Castlevania The Adventure on the Game Boy, Castlevania 2 Simon's Quest, which is terrible, and Kid Dracula, which is on the Famicom. Uh, we ran out of the package, and this is all coming for the uh, neat, uh, tidy price of $20 uh, for all of your consoles of choice. So that'll probably be around about 15, 16 uh, pounds sterling and whatever equivalent in euros. Um, I don't know if you're a Castlevania fan, I really like the original Castlevania and I really really like uh, Super, Castlevania, Super Castlevania 4 on the Super Nintendo. Um, so, you know, it's it's a platformer and it's, it's the kind of thing that it's Mark Robinson certified. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't, haven't had much experience of playing Castlevania but it's it's pretty much you know one of the most influential platformers of all time. There's a reason they hybridize it with Metroid and say Metroidvania style games, because they were that, that sort of definitive thing. And yeah, it's just again it's a logical step for them to to bring it to the Switch and to bring it into into people's into people's lives again. The, you know the 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 retro buck. Mark is a is an extremely weighty uh, market at the moment, which is why if you wonder these Nintendo types are seeing these games being remade or revamped or brought out to Switch and making all of the money and sitting there on you know possibly one of the most desirable uh, mountains of, of of games that people want to replay that would make them all the money and they're still like. Nah, not not just yet. Not 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 just yet. We'll we'll wait for a while before we're going to deliver any of that. Uh, recently dropped, uh, I think within the last couple of days or so, uh, Final Fantasy XII: The Zodiac Age, a game you are a fan of, uh, is now available on the Switch and Xbox One. Yep, really like this game. If you want to hear me talk about how much I like this game, go dig out 2017's Game of the Year. Uh, and listen to the uh, best remake section on that, in which I just wax incredibly lyrical about Final Fantasy XII. Often, it's like the forgotten Final Fantasy that that no one kind of really, really remembers or or, or got hugely into, just because of the nature of when it dropped, if if anything. And I think they weren't particularly confident about what the final product of it was, but. It's a really great game, and in terms of gameplay, like I don't think I've ever enjoyed a, a Final Fantasy more. The storyline is kind of what a lot of Final Fantasy players come for, and it's not amazing, but yeah, I this again is bringing it a, a brilliant game to to the attention of more people, and that that's always a good thing. And, and the Zodiac Age version of it is is a fantastic sort of remake, and the ability to you know, speed things up and walk through the game a little bit quicker if you need to, much like they did with Final Fantasy VII and, you know, the ability to have more than one class for your character, etc., etc., just generally adds to the overall experience. And, you know, there's, a, there's different modes that you can play in the game. And, yeah, it, it's great. Uh, go and play Final Fantasy XII. If you're an RPG fan and, yeah, even Mark, even you, I think you, you would... If you were gifted this game and you played it a little bit, I think you would enjoy it. It's so they've had a, a couple of uh, Final Fantasy games appear now on the Switch, like Final Fantasy VII, except the one on that there. I love. <laughs> yeah, like Final Fantasy VII is on there now, and so I've nine. I've finished seven, six, and I did about half of nine, 
Um, so I do, you know, if I'm going to do it, um, the Switch is a place where I'm going to play those games. It's where I played Final Fantasy VII. It was on my uh, PS Vita back in the day. Um, and six for that matter as well. So, yeah, I, I, I could be tempted by, by this. Um, this is, if I'm going to play it, the Switch is probably the way I'm going to play it. So possibly, possibly I could, I could jump on board with this. Mm. Highly recommended. Very good game. And finally, to round up our release date roundup, uh, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which is uh, kind of a spiritual successor to Castlevania, uh, which has been uh, by uh, Koji Igarashi. This game has been kind of in development hell for a while now, and it got uh, delayed um, after a penned second release date um, due to basically them wanting to, to raise the quality level of it. And they've recently uh, released a new video and it kind of does a side-by-side -side comparison like okay this is what the game did look like this is what it looks like now and there is a significant difference like it does look a lot better um so which is good because the game made 5.5 million uh, on kickstarter so you'd like to think that you know that would be the case um it's coming out in june it's been launched on the switch pc xbox one and ps4 uh the ps vita version unfortunately got the chop but, I mean, who the fuck's playing the Vita these days? So, never mind. But it looks good. I bet there's a small, dedicated fan base that still play the Vita. I wish I played my Vita more. I really like my Vita. But there's, yeah, there's nothing that's going to draw me back to it after I put it down, like, four or five years ago. Yeah, I still have mine somewhere, but unfortunately it's been collecting dust at this point. So, Yep, I still have my PSP, even. I I never got one, but I did want to get one because, um, I, from what I remember, it was pretty easy to um, hack the fuck out of it and basically make it an official retro games console and get like uh, Super Nintendo and Mega Drive games running off of it, but I never got around to getting one in the end. Yeah, I mean, you could have played all those sweet UMDs. Do you know, when you bought the original PSP, you got uh, Spider-Man 2, which is the best of the Sam Raimi Spider trilogy. Fight me, bro, if you disagree. Uh, on UMD, which was going to be this new microdisc format, Mark, that was going to revolutionise uh, movies and the way people watch them. Uh, and then people just realised, oh, wait, we can get these files digitally. Great. Uh, yeah. I, I love when I go into uh, CEX and I'll see, like, Waterworld or something on UMD and, like, that's going to stay there till the end of time. Like, when the, the nuclear holocaust comes, there's simply going to be cockroaches, radioactive waste material, and UMDs. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Chicago Town Pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel would definitely survive nuclear holocausts. Anyway, with that, we are going to move on to the final part of the show. We are going to do our book club feature. And this week, we are going back to the 90s. We are going back to the N64. And we are going back to uh, a once-in-a-moment uh, experience as Pokemon. We, we're moving away from the typical RPG adventure that you would get with Pokemon. And instead, we're picking up the camera to go and take pictures as we talk about Pokemon Snap. Hell yeah. 
Pokemon Snap is a first-person rail shooter and simulation video game co-developed by HAL Laboratory and PAX Softnica and published by Nintendo for the N64. It was first released in Japan in March 1999 and was later released in June 1999 in North America and in September 2000 for Power Regions. It is a spin-off game in the Pokemon series, being one of the first console-based games for it and featuring many Pokemon rendered for the first time in real-time 3D. The game was re-released for the Wii's Virtual Console in December 2007, as well as Wii U's Virtual Console in 2016. Originally announced as a Nintendo 64 DD title, development of Pokemon Snaps was moved to the N64 due to the 64 DD's delays. The gameplay is similar to other first-person games, viewing from the perspective of protagonist Todd Snap as he moves automatically on a rail. The objective of the game is to take pictures of Pokemon using items such as apples and pester balls to achieve better shots. After each round, players are judged based on the quality of their photos. The Virtual Console version features the ability to send pictures taken in-game to the Wii message board and send them to friends, whereas the N64 cartridge could be taken to either Blockbuster or Lawson stores in North America and Japan to have games for the uh, game printed on stickers. So, Pokemon Snap is so interesting in that after its release and after it was, was made and created and we all played it, they never ever came back to it again. It was never followed up on. And no, and there was a poll um, a while back about like the most anticipated games that that Nintendo could bring. I think it was to the to Wii U uh, when they were talking about remakes. And and we've got number one was Metroid, the, a new Metroid game, which is is coming to the Switch. Number two, Mark, Pokemon Snap. Yep. And yeah. But the reason, I mean, I'm starting kind of at the end, but the reason I don't think we're getting another Pokemon Snap is Pokemon Go. Because Pokemon Go is kind of Pokemon Snap, really, isn't it? Kind of, but I feel like at this point, um, the the Switch would be perfect, or even the Wii U would have been perfect for like the... Um, uh, the way that you can move the the console around, and you you know you could have been physically moving yourself to take pictures of things, as compared to having to use the analog stick on the N sixty four. Like so, kind of from a a, a hardware uh, perspective, like I think that is a a viable option, and would be even be more of an immersive uh, experience thing compared to back in the day. In virtual reality, Mark, imagine it. Oh, oh my God! Please don't do it! Don't do it! You would never leave the Pokemon world of virtual reality. It would be incredible. Um, so but, I, want, I want to start with, I want you to talk to me about uh, where you were, like your first time coming to Pokemon Snap. What do you remember of your early experiences with this game? Um, I think initially when I heard about it, I was like, well, that doesn't sound that good. Like, why are they doing that? A Pokemon game where you don't like fight the Pokemon and you don't catch the Pokemon. What's the point? Um, and then I saw someone play it and I was like, okay, that's really really cool like it's it's the first pokemon game i think because pokemon stadium was was cool and it was it was like seeing these these 3d rendered you know versions of pokemon but it was the first game that made me feel more like i was in the anime version of pokemon so as the graphics and the adventures and stuff got better and the um, the handheld Pokemon RPGs and stuff, they kind of became a bit more immersive. But this felt like 
a real life version of being in the anime because for the first time the pokemon weren't just making weird noises they were making the actual sounds that pokemon made in the tv show todd snap was a character from the anime where people weren't sure if it was called todd or snap and they probably just didn't realize they made a mistake and decided to take the two things put them together and make a new guy called todd snap um and it just felt like you were in the pokemon universe i mean obviously when you go through the rail levels multiple times you realize it's just the same thing over and over again but it's a very organic and immersive environment and it's just a really interesting concept for a game there was nothing like this mark was there before um no i remember there was i can't remember if it was before or after i remember there was like a horror game where the way that you dealt with an enemy is you had to look down the lens of the camera to, to take them out but um there was nothing like this, uh, and it's it's interesting to think that like a rail shooter, because uh, when I think of like rail shooters, or well, obviously this isn't a rail shooter, but it's an on rails game. When I typically think of it, an on rails game, you think of the likes of like Virtua Cop or House of the Dead. That's kind of like or Resident Evil Survivor. You know, there, that's the type of game you're gonna get from that sort of experience, and it's such a a unique and original concept. And, and Pokemon is the perfect thing to do with that because I mean you could have made this uh, a, a, you know a on rails photography game with like just actual birds and animals and whatever, but um, who the fuck's going to play that? You know, uh, that's... yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> so taking Pokemon, which you know at this point we're what four or five years like really into the 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 just I mean Pokemon Silver and Gold would have been what ninety. Eight, nine, yeah, they would have been around just before this game came yeah. out. Uh, so you know, this game, this whole thing, this franchise is at like a fever pitch, um, and it just gives a new perspective on it. And it's at this point again as well, because we're like Pokemon Stadium. It's just like okay, here are these Pokemon, and you can actually battle with them in three D, which is cool enough in itself. This is taking Pokemon and you know, having them more just kind of act like animals and creatures kind of in their own natural environment or habitat or like in different areas where we're like in a tunnel or a power plant or whatever it was and just having Pokemon within their own kind of like elements you'd expect them to be in and it has a real charm to it. Like it's something that, and I think this is part of why we'd love to see it developed into something these days is because obviously you can take that concept and how they could expand on that and have different Pokemon in different areas and then how they interact with like other Pokemon of the same species or interact with the environment around them. Like the amount that they did within this game here, how they could do that in 2019, it it saddens me that it doesn't exist. Yeah, it, it does. But like I say, it, I feel like Pokemon Go because everybody, and, and this is one of the, the points of contention for for nintendo or or game freak as to why they don't want to do anything like this now back then no one was easily taking photos of anything in like the year 2000 people were just about getting digital cameras and stuff uh and they were still these big boxy things that you had to take people were still using film etc which is why like at the end of each of the pokemon levels you're going to professor oak and he's 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 uh, developing your photos and telling you which one's the best one and you should use that etc etc but now like you've got 
an augmented reality game where Pokemon appear on a map and you go into it and then you can then see in the world around you like a Pokemon standing there in front of you that you can catch. And then your friends can all gather around it and you can take a screenshot and within a few seconds you can put it on Twitter and share it and do whatever you like. So I, as much as I think people would love a new version of this game, I think it's unlikely that they would do it in exactly the same style because I think they would probably not necessarily see much more than a novelty and like the amount of development that would probably be required to get it to a level that people would be happy with that I don't see it happening but like let's talk about um just how cool like some of the things that you can do in in the game are Mark like the idea that you're trying to get like the the most the the best photo of the Pokemon and every step of the level there's like a new opportunity to create something right so within like the what the first maybe 20 30 yards of the first level there's a surfboard there there's a pikachu about 10 yards away from it and you look at one thing and you look at another and you realize that you've got apples that you can use to lure the pikachu and you think to yourself right if i just throw an apple there an apple there i can get this pikachu to get on that surfboard and then boom surfing pikachu you take a photo professor oak's like wow that's a great shot Lapras, it's far away. It looks like the Loch Ness monster. Obviously yeah. intentional. The the closer you bring it in, the more you sort of throw things and make things happen in the level. It develops it. It gets closer. And yeah, every level's got its own little puzzles in for you to get the best possible picture of all these Pokemon. And the events that you make happen, like you know, luring Magikarps on the on the water level, luring Magikarps into a fountain so it it gets mad it evolves into gyarados and stuff which is like you know using like a an ancient chinese parable about carp jumping over rivers and turning into dragons and stuff like it, it goes as deep as that or the squirrel squad from the anime in that level as well there's just so many little cool features um what are some of your favorite bits and pieces from from the gameplay of pokemon snap um i <sighs> You know, it's been so long since I played it that like remembering a lot of it um, doesn't come to me immediately. Um, yeah. For me, it was just it was just the concept of the game itself that I always kind of think back to fondly, and um, always the idea of trying to you know get that best picture. Um, certainly with Snorlax, that fucker always trying to get a picture of him. <laughs> trying to get him in frame because he's so he's bloody so fucking massive. Big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the thing for me that I always enjoyed is that, and that's kind of part of the because uh, it, it is a short game, you know. By no means is it a long game, but the the replayability comes from you know getting that best picture of a Pokemon and how best to get a group of Pokemon to come into a shot at the same time um, and getting to all look at the camera and how you go between using the poker flute or using um, the ball to you know get them in shot. Uh, and the, the kind of trial and error around that, seeing like how Pokemon's act to, to different items that you use, um, I think it's it's such a very simple concept, and the mechanics to it are very simple as well. But it has a, a replayability to it, where you know you get a Pikachu in shot, but it's just slightly to the left of the shot that you want, and it's not quite looking at the camera. So you go back in to try and do it again, and then you try and start like, okay, let's try and you know, how many. Uh, perfect pictures can I get in this one run just to be that kind of flash fuck as well and uh, it's that kind of thing that like if <laughs> flash fuck was rejected as Todd Snap's name initially yeah, in concept 
Um, but if if we'd had it today, where you could have, as I said, the the, the ability to link it up to Twitter, uh, just my Twitter feed would be full of different pictures of different, yeah. Different like points. when it came on the Wii Shop, you could upload it to like uh, the Wii, the old school Wii message board, and like uh, immediately some functionality was was improved in it. But I love and and I think they're extremely like collector's itemy now. Um, the the big booths that you could go to, obviously they never had them in this country. But like I, as I was researching this for today, Mark, the, the, you could go and plug your your cartridge into one of these booths, and and they were mainly in Blockbuster, and you could like print out little sort of passport photo versions of your of your pictures that you took in Pokemon Snap, and like these change hands for like thousands of dollars now. Like there are still fully working versions of this that you can probably buy if you're like an absolute nutcase honestly this is a, boots have missed a trick by not having this in their their photo booths they absolutely do they they do they they, they should still have this so it would be awesome if you could do that if you could do that with like pokemon go if you could print out like a cool version of it like an imagine that like all photo booths had the ability to have augmented reality in there and you could have anything in the background of like pokemon or like the uh that'd be fantastic but nevertheless i digress i'm just gutted about my boring passport photo that has to exist in my passport no one wants to see that anyway it's just uh i, I think the the whole idea of the game and everything around like the fact that it 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 started life as a jack and a beanstalk the, the name of the project and then gradually evolved into this thing where they were like well you know what are we going to do with this we've come up with this whole concept let's just plug and play pokemon into it normally when things are done like and i don't want to say it's been done cynically because things aren't usually done that cynically by nintendo but it's it's almost like it's, its existence was an accident. Like, if they were developing the technology for something else. And the sheer fact that it has what you describe so well, like the innate charm and, and replayability, and, and just when you're playing this, it, it's, it's that sort of really happy feels that just come over you. Like, you know how Dave talks so much about um, Tetris effect just washing over him and being like that morphine effect? When I'm playing Pokemon Snap, it makes me happy. Like, there's a real satisfaction to it. There's no, like, spookiness, no weirdness. Like, when you're when you're trapped in the, in the final level as well and you've got to take pictures of Mew in that sort of rainbow, even though it's really stressful to get a good picture of Mew, like, there's just a genuine joy that's coursing through your veins as you're playing it, but, like, a real relaxation as well at the same time. It just tra- transports you. And for a game that really only kind of exists by accident, being developed as something else for a, a functionality on Nintendo that 64 that was completely scrapped, it's like the happy accident, and it almost certainly is lightning in a bottle. And I don't, because of the things I've already said, I don't ever see it being done again. And I just think this is like this relic in time of you know an intense popularity of pokemon where it was at the moment and with the technology that they had produced this sort of one-off sleeper hit um that it's it's almost like you know people talk about pokemon they talk about the games they'll talk about gold and silver how much they love those maybe the original ones or you know they talk about sort of more recent versions of it 
if if someone says to you about Pokemon Snap, it's kind of like, you know, it's like the person that says, oh, you know, my favorite Oasis song is the Master Plan or something, where it's like everybody that knows it in a little bit more detail just goes, yeah, man, that was really good. That's a really good. That's a really good game. That's a really good song, etc. It's just that little thing of like knowing about this. It's 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 a it's a hidden treasure in a back catalog of of something that produced you know multiple movies and you know a trading card game and 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 games and is is internally successful but here's this little weird thing that exists on a whim and i absolutely i love it i love everything about it uh, it's just such a great little treasure and if no if if you haven't played it and you're listening to this now just even if you don't necessarily want to go and dig out your <laughs> you know i could think you could actually legally obtain it now i don't if you don't want to go on ebay and buy a nintendo 64 or whatever or a wii with a copy of it on it just go on youtube and just watch someone playing it and tell me you kind of don't it doesn't put a smile on your face and you don't want to play it i was gonna ask you for your elevator pitch but you kind of already did that for me there I did. I just, I just really, I'm, I'm overcome with, with happiness when I think about this and, and what it means to me. Um, and at any time I've gone back to it, just how, how it makes me feel. So yeah, it's such an evocative, joyful piece of art. Well, with that, the only thing we have left to do is uh, pick a game for next week. And I have nothing off the top of my head. I don't know if you came prepared with anything, Jack, or should we leave it to? Uh, we should leave it for anticipation for next week. <laughs> Aside from getting Keith Brony back to talk about the postmodernist franchise nightmare that is Metal Gear Solid 2, <laughs> wrapped in an enigma, <laughs> wrapped in a dream, wrapped in craziness, then no, I don't have anything for you at this time. Well, we will see. We will see what happens next week. Um, yep. But with that, uh, that is the end of this show. Um, as usual, you can find us over on Twitter at uh, links to the cast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lithium Project. You can find Jack at what is your Twitter handle these days? It is at Jack Lazell, which is J A C K L A Y Z E double L. We have a number of other podcasts on this network, including the Once in a While Grap Up, where we look at all the happenings in the world of professional wrestling, uh, which is almost impossible to keep track of because week on week that fucking beast changes and we usually only get to a show every couple of months. Um, but uh, WWE is prepared to go to Saudi Arabia again, so maybe we're just going to ignore them for a while. Uh, we also have the Popcorn Social. When are we finally getting that reward award show, Jack? <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably going to have to be the 2020 Oscars at this point. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and we also have a, a sister show, uh, Days of Thunder, where Dave Ryan and friend of the show, Lee Malone, go through every single episode of the... Uh, I'm not going to say popular weekly wrestling television show in the late 90s, which was WCW Thunder. Um, and... I think he's starting to break, but I feel he's also still going to persevere for reasons still. Every, every time I hear the name of the podcast, I'm very disappointed he didn't call it Dave of Thunder with Lee. Like I don't think he wanted to take all the glory. <laughs> yeah, just like, <laughs> kind of like on the side, just underneath with Lee. But yeah, just Dave of, Day of Thunder and Days of Thunder, they're just so close. Like, <laughs> I, it, it's frustrating. <laughs> to me as a man that enjoys making puns for almost no reason at all times 
Um, once again, uh, Jack is now an official part of this show, a fully fledged member, and uh, Jack, it's uh, it's good to have you on board. I am very much enjoying and honoured to be a part of this wonderful podcast, which I listen to as a fan with a big grin on my face on the miserable experience that is the tube on a, on a weekly basis, if I can. So yeah, uh, I guess the only sad part is if I'm on it, there's no point in me listening back to it. But even though I do sometimes, just because obviously I'm in love with my own voice. <laughs> and on that beautiful bombshell, we shall leave you for now. This was 113 episode 139 of A Links to the Cast, and we will see you beautiful people again next week. No post-credits.